Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Fourth District Congressman Jim Himes, a Democrat, is seeking re-election against Republican challenger Jamie Stevenson. Himes has served in the U.S. House since 2009 after beating longtime Republican Congressman Chris Shays. Himes' opponent, Stevenson, is the town of Darien's former selectman. Both candidates faced off last night at Norwalk Community College, the latest in Connecticut Public's debate series, moderated by Dr. Clyla Brown-Dean, host of Disrupted. Today, where we live, we get analysis of the debate and hear about the race in the 4th District. What questions do you have? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Brianna Gerchulo, Stanford Advocate reporter covering local government and politics. Brianna, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. You were watching the debate last night. Before we get there, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the 4th Congressional District and what we know about registered voters. Sure, of course. Um, 4th Congressional District covers um, a lot of the southwest of the state. Uh, It's Fairfield County and um, a little bit of New Haven County. Um, And it's, it's more than a dozen cities and towns. Um, actually, I will pull up right now to show you a little bit about the voter breakdown there. Um, the takeaway is that there are about as many Democratic registered voters as there are unaffiliated voters. Um, but more specifically, um, when you take a look at the numbers, the district has 168,000 registered Democrats, just about about 90,000 Republicans, and then about 166,000 unaffiliated voters. Um, And then there's about 6,000 voters registered with the independent party. Um, But the towns are Bridgeport, Darien, Easton, Fairfield, Greenwich, Monroe, New Canaan, Norwalk, Oxford, Reading, Ridgefield, a part of Shelton, um, Stamford, Trumbull, Weston, Westport, and Wilton. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of just that line along the uh, Long Island Sound. So interesting uh, makeup when you think about some of the the towns and cities and included there. Uh, well, last night when we were watching the debate, I feel like a lot of people who may not have known Jamie Stevenson learned a lot about where she stood on the issues. What were your takeaways? Um, yeah, uh, you know, I think so. Jamie Stevenson was the uh, first selectman of Darien for ten years. She's very well known in Darien. Um, she's popular in Darien, actually. Uh, if you, you watch the debate, uh, you could hear people, um, you know, vocally cheering for her at the beginning. And, and I think those were some of her supporters. I think she actually said, um, you know, from Darianne. Um, and uh, she, she actually uh, describes herself as, um, you know, conservative fiscally, um, but more liberal socially. And I think that kind of came out uh, last night, especially when they were talking about um, abortion. 
Yes, uh, that was interesting. We actually have some clips about uh, when the question about uh, where they stood on abortion. Uh, Here is, again, Republican candidate Jamie Stevenson. Let's take a listen. I am a firm believer in a woman's right to choose her health care decisions with the support of her doctors and her family. Um, And if it should be codified at the federal level, I believe we need to have that conversation. My opponent has been in Washington for 14 years. There are at least two occasions with a strong Democrat majority that he had the opportunity to codify the protections of Roe versus Wade, and he chose not to. I hope that when I'm in Congress, I get to be at the table to have that conversation. Now, Jim Himes, again, the incumbent, had a pretty interesting response to this, Brianna, noting uh, Stevenson's, quote, chutzpah for dinging a Democrat on abortion rights, uh, also referencing uh, when members of her party, like Senator Lindsey Graham, who have proposed a, a federal ban on abortion. What was your make of, of her take on that topic? Yeah, that was an interesting response. Um, yeah, he he mentioned Lindsey Graham's uh, proposal, and he also... Um, you know, uh, he himself said he was getting animated. And I would I would say maybe it was one of the most animated moments of the night. Um, and he said it was because of uh, Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion um, in Dobbs versus Jackson, um, in which he, you know, uh, Justice Thomas t- talks about potentially revisiting other cases, cases that have to do with same-sex marriage. Um, cases that have to do with contraception, contraception, excuse me. Um, and Jamie, I, th- I thought, uh, you know, she had the chance to response to respond on that. And she wanted to make the point as well. Like, um, you know, you're bringing up these issues, but just so everyone knows, I break from my party on this. I, um, you know, have signed a letter in support of the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, I've received the endorsement of log cabin Republicans. So again, kind of just trying to show that Yes, she's a Republican, but she's more moderate Republican seemed to be, um, you know, the message she wanted to get out there. You're hearing Brianna Garchulo here where we live. She's a reporter for the Stanford Advocate covering local government and politics as we get some analysis of the Connecticut public debate between the fourth congressional district candidates, incumbent Jim Himes and Republican Jamie Stevenson. Uh, there was also uh, some interesting moments where you know the candidates actually said that they agreed on particular issues uh, related to gun rights and even to a certain extent immigration reform, although they differed on that latter topic around the source of fentanyl. So were you surprised to hear some of the general alignment between the candidates, Brianna? I wouldn't say I was surprised being familiar with their positions before, but like you said, um, they they found points of agreement on, um, you know, even in, in healthcare, uh, where both of them said there needed to, to be more of a focus in the healthcare system on prevention. Um, and like you said, um, gun rights and gun control, immigration, yes, the, the fentanyl um, piece, they, they disagreed. Um, whereas um, Jim Himes uh, wanted to make the point that, um, a, that some fentanyl, or I think he said, it was something like 90% of fentanyl, and he cited CBP on that, um, comes through legal ports of entry. Um, uh, But overall on immigration, they both said that they wanted secure borders. Um, They had some agreement about education too, um, and saying that there's been a lot of emphasis in the country on four-year college, and there should be 
um, more investment in apprenticeships and trades and two-year um, institutions. So, uh, but in other areas, <laughs> there was there was there was disagreement. Things like lowering the age for Medicare. Um, Heim supported that. Um, Stevenson does not. Um, and there was disagreement about uh, about Himes's record um, and what he's done in Congress. Um, you know, Himes was touting his record, and Stevenson um, had a different take yeah. <laughs> on what he had done in Congress, um, thinking that that she would be able to bring more to the table. I wanted to play a clip uh, where. Uh incumbent Jim Himes actually answered a question. I thought it was an interesting exchange last night between the candidates uh, when the moderator brought up a question about you know, how to solve the, the divisiveness in the country. Uh, Jim Himes uh, answered this question first. He recalled, of course, the events of January 6th. He was there and shared powerful words about the roles we all play in resolving animosity. Let's hear it. At the end of the day, it's all of you. If you wake up tomorrow morning and you're a Democrat, and you hate the fact that your daughter may marry a Republican, which is a thing now, or if you're sliding into the place where 40% of Americans live today, that maybe violence is okay, there's nothing that we can do to fix that. But democracy relies on the responsibility of its citizens. And then uh, Jamie Stevenson uh, condemned, quote, everything that took place on January 6th, Brianna. She also pointed out to or pointed to rather the, quote, root causes of all this divisiveness and feelings of, quote, disenfranchisement that drove people to the U.S. Capitol that day. What did you make uh, of her comment? Um, well, first, I wanted to just mention um, Himes's comment about 40 percent um, of Americans. I believe what he was uh, referring to was a, a poll um, that was done by the Washington Post and University of Maryland, um, in which 40% of Republicans um, said that in some cases, um, violent actions against the government um, could be justifiable. Um, but as for Jamie's response, she, um, I think the key takeaway from what she was saying was that she thinks uh, amid the divisiveness in the, in the country, uh, the best thing that she can do is, I think the term she used was be a role model of civility. Um, and on the public stage, on a very uh, uh, bright stage, such as the US Capitol of, of, of being someone who is more moderate and someone who is, I guess, level-headed. So that was, that was her response. Um, whereas Himes kind of made the point that and this is something that I you, you hear from um, Democrats nationally is that on some issues there is no compromise. Um, on some issues, you know, we Democrats want to draw a line in the sand and, and not cross it. Um, on things, you know, and, it, and a lot of it ties back to January sixth and what happened there. Mm-hmm. We've been hearing Brianna Gurchulo here where we live. Again, she's a Stanford advocate reporter covering local government and politics. Uh, good luck with the rest of the campaign season, Brianna. We appreciate your time on the show. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Now, coming up, our favorite garden writer, Charlie Nardozzi, joins us to answer all of your gardening questions. But before we get to that, this is the final day of Connecticut Public's fall membership campaign. Please support the programs you hear like Where We Live with a pledge. Here's my colleague, Robin Doyen Aiken, to tell you more.
morning. I'm Robin Diane Aiken, the senior producer of the Food Show Seasoned. I uh, want to let you know that supporting... Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, fall in Connecticut has been looking spectacular, minus today's morning drizzle. It's supposed to brighten up later. Don't worry. This weekend is a great time to do some garden cleanup and prep for spring. Now, the gardener we rely on to answer our questions and yours is horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi. He's an award-winning garden writer and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public. And he says it's the perfect time, of course, to plant bulbs like tulips, daffodils, and hyacinths, or maybe you want to get some into the ground, some shallots or garlic. What questions do you have for Charlie? You can join us now at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Charlie Narduzzi, it's such a pleasure to have you back. Well, it's always great to be here, Lucy. And you've written many great gardening books. My favorite, the New England Month-by-Month Gardening. And, of course, there's the Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. So you can always get uh, more information about gardening from Charlie by reading his books. So let's start with uh, what we should be planting now, Charlie. Uh, we recently had uh, the organizer of the Connecticut Garlic and Harvest Festival that takes place in Bethlehem. Uh, they were mm-hmm. on uh, the other weekend, and we wanted to talk about garlic planting. So tell us um, the varieties that we should be looking for and how to do it. Sure. Yeah, this is starting now going probably to mid-November is a great time to plant garlic. And garlic is one of those easy, easy vegetables to grow that I think a lot of people don't think about because you have to plant it in the fall. But all you do is you plant it in the fall, you, you mulch it to make sure <clears throat> it goes through the winter okay. Um, and in the spring, you weed it, water it, maybe give it a little fertilizer. And by early summer, you've got a bevy of garlic uh, that you can just keep uh, eating and then replanting. So the first thing to do is decide what kind of garlic you want to plant. And there are basically three types, but two main types. That's the hardneck and the softneck garlic. The hardneck are the garlics that come up and have those little curly cues at the ends of those. Those are called scapes. And those are edible too, by the way. Um, And there's a number of different varieties, like the Russian red, for example. Uh, And these are varieties that you'd want to find not in a grocery store, but in a garden center, nursery, farmer's market, places like that. Uh, Because varieties that you find in a grocery store often come from places like California, which, of course, would not be applicable as far as climate goes uh, to growing here in Connecticut. Uh, And then there are soft neck varieties. These are the varieties that you often will see as a garlic braid. Um, And there's not a lot of difference between the two. They're both very hardy, very easy to grow. I like to think that the hard neck varieties um, have larger cloves with fewer of them and the soft neck have a a smaller cloves, but more of them. But a lot of it comes down to taste and flavor too. 
And how deep should you put these uh, garlic bulbs in the soil? Because I know with certain bulbs that the depth uh, matters. Uh, yes, it does. So the first thing to do, of course, is to have a raised bed. And it's a nice time of year to clean out an old bed of, of lettuce or squash or cucumbers or something that's kind of gone by. Bring in a, a layer of compost on top of that raised bed. And you like a raised bed because you want to keep that soil really well drained. The only time I've seen garlic not survive the winter was when I planted it in a place where it was too wet all winter and it ended up rotting. And then when you plant them, you want to plant them about six inches apart and about two inches deep. So uh, the top of it should be about two inches deep into the soil. And then you just plant rows of it. And always remember, though, each clove that you plant is going to create a bulb of garlic that has maybe seven or eight more cloves. So if you plant 40 of these, you could have over 200 cloves of garlic next year. Did I just hear Charlie Nardozzi admit he made a mistake went while gardening? <laughs> I don't feel so bad. <laughs> How else do you learn, Lucy? <laughs> Again, you can join us with your gardening question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so when we think about garlic, is that in the allium family, or are, some, are there some other alliums that are good to plant this time of year? Uh, yes, it is in the allium family. And the other allium you can plant this time of year that many people don't plant, but I think uh, should, is the shallot. Uh, shallots are kind of small onions. Uh, the French use it a lot in cooking. And there's, in, in fact, a variety called French red. Uh, these are nice, delicate, small onions that you would pop into the soil, plant pretty much the same way you plant garlic, but just not as deep. They don't need to be planted as deep. They tend to grow more on the surface of the soil. Uh, you pop them in now, and then next spring what happens is they start growing, and as they grow, they create side bulbs. So again, from one clove of a shallot that you plant into the ground, you may get five, six, seven, eight um, other cloves of those that you can use. Um, they're very hardy, and I've actually kept them downstairs in our basement for a year. I've got some shallots from last year <laughs> that I forgot about, and I pulled them out, and we ate them, and they tasted fine. So they're long-lasting, a nice allium family crop. I like the the ornamental allium, of course, the globe master and the gladiator, yeah. and I have to say, I plant them and they look beautiful the first year, Charlie, and then they just don't really come back. So what am I doing wrong? Well, it could be a couple of things. It could be drainage. I was talking about how the garlic and shallots like a really well-drained soil. That's true of all of the alliums. So they might be in a spot where it gets a little too wet and, and damp and stays that way in the winter, which would cause them to rot. It could be that they're forming some offset bulbs around the sides of the main bulb. This often will happen with uh, hyacinths and tulips and other uh, bulbs that we plant. And what you can do is at this time of year, as you're going through, and you, can, you might still see the stalks with the beautiful dried seed heads on them. Uh, you could dig up that bulb, take a look at it. And if you see these little bulblets around there, remove those and reset it, maybe with a little uh, bulb booster fertilizer or at least some compost. But make sure, again, the soil is well drained. And that might help it for next year. Again, you can join us with your gardening questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I, I love, you know, you have to put in all the work in, in the fall to get a beautiful uh, spring garden with some of the, the bulbs that emerge. Are there particular ones that you want to talk about, Charlie? Well, certainly, this is the time of year, just like with the garlic, you can plant from now till mid-November. Um, everything from crocuses to hyacinths and daffodils and unusual bulbs, too. There's one group that I really like to highlight uh, often, especially for people who are frustrated with the regular hybrid tulips that a lot of times they don't come back or they kind of fade over a couple of years, 
is to plant the species versions of tulips or the wildflower tulips. These are the original tulips that would grow in the Middle East and Turkey and Iran and places of that area. Um, and they are low growing. Uh, they have beautiful leaves to them. Some of them have spiral kind of designs on the leaves. Uh, and then they have beautiful colored flowers, but they're not those tall ones that we normally would see as a hybrid tulip. So if you're interested in experimenting a little bit, these are nice ones to have because they're hardy, they're tough, and they tend to come back more reliably than the hybridized tulips. I know we've talked in the past about uh, planting bulbs, Charlie. I like to give uh, shout outs to some of, of the uh, providers of bulbs in our state, including Color Blends in Bridgeport, as well as Sheepers in Bantam. Is it too late, though, to get bulbs from them, or do you have to be a little early uh, in ordering those uh, for fall planting? Yeah, it might be a little late. You, you could try uh, for sure. And uh, especially if you can find a retail outlet, it would be a little uh, nicer. Another nice thing about color blends in Bridgeport is they have a house that they have put all hundreds of bulbs in and it's a, oh, free and open to the public in the spring. So that's kind of a fun place to go to get inspired with tulips and daffodils and other bulbs. Uh, you recently wrote about some of the best pumpkins for carving. So can I ask you about those? Sure. So uh, pumpkins, of course, is another seasonal thing that we're doing. And a lot of people like to carve them. And there's a lot of different kind of pumpkins out on the market now. That, that's kind of really fun about pumpkins. That no longer is it just the big orange thing. <laughs> you've got white ones. You've got pink ones. You've got ones that are kind of a pale yellow color. You've got ones that are, that are all kind of warty. Uh, and knobby on them. So it's nice to choose some of these different pumpkins as ones that you can carve, uh, especially the ones that are really warty. It could make a really gruesome face out of it, I think. Um, and those are really great ones to use. And of course, there's a lot of winter squash that are out there too that you can carve and make kind of fun designs on them as well. So don't limit yourself just to that orange pumpkin. There's a lot of variety. You also have some pointers on how to dispose of those pumpkins and also protecting them from frost, which we were pretty close to, I believe, the other week. I was actually in North Carolina, so I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. It's a way to get up away from the frost. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so uh, frost is definitely something to be concerned about this time of year, especially if you have a lot of things that are still growing, looking beautiful, like your dahlias, for example, or even some of your vegetables. Uh, and simply by covering them, uh, you can often get another couple weeks of fall warm weather. Um, so it's worth making the effort and kind of keeping in mind and keeping an eye or an ear on the radio for the weather to hear if there's any frost warnings. As far as pumpkins go, there's one thing that I've been playing around with uh, for a number of years now, and that's creating what we call a jack-o'-plantern. <laughs> so instead of a jack-o'-lantern, this is a pumpkin where you hollow it out, you cut the top off, you hollow it out, you put potting soil in, and then you plant it with anything, whatever you might have. It could be fall crops like flowering cabbage or some pansies. Um, I found some scallions, green onions that a garden center was almost ready to throw out. And I grabbed those and I put it in the top. So you can create a kind of a different uh, look on each one of the pumpkins by the different types of plants you grow. So the, the onions could be kind of a spiky hair look. You can put a calabrocoa or a petunia that has more of a floppy look to it or something that looks like a cap like the flowering cabbage or flowering kale. It's a fun way to use a pumpkin and have it look decorative. And then at the end of the season, especially if you use some things that are hardy, like the flowering kale and cabbage or like some uh, succulents, you can bring those indoors and have them as houseplants. 
That's a great idea. You're hearing Charlie Nardozzi again here where we live. He's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public. He's here to answer your fall gardening questions. We know you have them, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned dahlias, and so it might be good to talk a little bit about when we think about cleaning up the garden, what you're bringing in, and, and how to store them, Charlie? Uh, Yes. So dahlias, cannas, gladiolus, any of those subtropical bulbs will not survive the winter in our climate. So what we'll have to do is that once the frost has killed them back, uh, we need to dig them up and store them. And so a simple way to do it is enjoy them now because (laughs) they're probably still looking very nice, except for the gladiolus. You probably could dig those up. They're they're long gone. Um, And when you do dig them up, you want to be careful not to damage any of the tubers or corms that are under the ground. And for a dahlia and a canna, you're going to dig up the whole clump. You're going to get a clump, a big mass of all these tubers kind of hanging off the center stem there. Um, And that's okay. So you want to dig that up, maybe clean it off a little bit, knock off some of the soil, put it in a warm place that's uh, not in bright sun, like a garage or a shed or a barn or someplace like that, where it can cure for a couple weeks, uh, protected from a frost, of course, too. And what that will do is that will help callus it up and help toughen up that plant. And then after that period of time, then you're going to want to store it in its permanent spot for the winter. And that could be a basement or, again, an unheated garage, anywhere that stays above freezing and hopefully below 50 degrees um, in the wintertime. That's a good location. For dahlias and for cannas, you can put them in a cardboard box uh, with some slightly moistened peat moss or potting soil, uh, that would work okay. I put them in uh, perforated plastic bags with the same kind of mixture. You just have to be careful, especially with those more fleshy tubers. Uh, If you make it too wet in the bag, they'll start rotting, or if they're too dry, they start shriveling. So maybe once a month or so through the winter, go down and just check them, just see how they're doing. If they're shriveling, missed a little water in there. If they seem to be rotting, pull them out, let the soil dry out, and then put them back in. But if you do that, you're going to end up having next spring all these plants that you can divide into more tubers and have more plants because everybody wants to have more plants, right? (laughs) That's right. Again, you're hearing Charlie Nardozzi here where we live. You can answer your gardening questions at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So producer Katie Pellico is thinking about getting started with some indoor gardening. So uh, what advice can you give her? Oh, indoor gardening. Sure. So one of the things you could do probably still this time of year, it's getting a little late to do it, but I still think it'd be worth a try, is to bring in some herbs. So if you have oregano or thyme or sage um, or parsley or even chives, especially if you already have them in containers that are growing out on a deck, a patio, or even in the garden, you can bring them in and have them indoors all winter long so you can enjoy them and have these plants that, again, you'll put back out again next year. You just have to be careful about bringing them in. Obviously, you want to have them uh, in a smallish pot so it can fit on a windowsill or a place where it gets a lot of sun. You want to quarantine these away from other houseplants because they might have some insects that will hitchhike in. So you want to keep an eye on that for a couple weeks. And if you see any insects, bring them back out, spray them, let them sit out there for a while, then bring them back in. But if you do that and put them in a sunny window, then you could have some beautiful herbs that you can cook with through the holidays and, and even beyond. 
Uh, so that's one thing you could do to have an indoor garden. Another thing, of course, is to do is to get some uh, soil and uh, get some things that germinate quickly that could be really nice greens, almost um, like uh, microgreens or uh, plants that you're just going to snip when they're very small. So these could be everything from a pea shoot um, to beet greens to arugula to all these other mm -hmm. kinds of plants. You're not trying to grow these to maturity. All you're trying to do is to get them to grow up maybe about six inches tall or so. You snip them and then you can put them in salads and soups and you can have that fresh taste of greens right in the middle of the winter. And Charlie, we have a, a question coming in from a caller, Don in Norwich. Don, go ahead. Um, hi, I was wondering about the jack-o'-plantern. Um, do you have to drain, like have any drain holes in it? Uh, no, actually you don't uh, because okay. a lot of time, unless we get really heavy rains. Yeah, maybe at that point it might get a little flooded. But I think if that's been the forecast, you just pull it under a porch or something and it'll be fine. But under normal situations, I haven't seen that be a problem. And eventually, of course, it's going to start rotting and, and falling apart um, anyway. So, uh, yeah, the drain holes really are not essential. Thank you for that uh, that question, Don. It's a great idea. I think my daughter would love it. Again, you're hearing Charlie Nardozzi here where we live. He's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. We're going to take a quick break. But if you have a question for him, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're taking a break from the news and campaign season to talk about gardening with my guest, Charlie Nardozzi, who's host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public, also author of several gardening books, including New England Month-by-Month -Month Gardening and The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. You can ask Charlie your gardening question at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Greg is calling in from Cornwall. Greg, go ahead. Sure. Uh, good morning. Um, this question has probably been fielded before, but I'm going to ask anyway. As the holidays approach, poinsettia, particularly the ones that are in the, in the house, um, will turn red with a trick. I don't know what the trick is. It's, I believe it's got to do with, at this time of year, shading the plant, but I'd like to know more about that. So perhaps Charlie can... Uh, enlighten us. Charlie? <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Uh, yes, so the trick is darkness, yes, and that's exactly what poinsettias will need because you're tricking them into thinking that it's further into the winter than it really is. Uh, if you did nothing, they would eventually turn red, but it would be more like in April. Uh, so what you can do this time of year is take your poinsettia plant, put it in a completely dark spot, like a closet, at night uh, for a good 12 to 14 hours every night. Take it out in the day, put it back in a sunny window, and then at night, put it back in again. It is something you have to do religiously for a good six weeks. Uh, so uh, hopefully you don't have any plans to travel. <laughs> uh, but if you are going to be around and be able to do that, that will stimulate those bracts, which aren't really flowers but are modified leaves, uh, to start turning red. And once they start turning red, then you can just leave it out uh, all season long and it'll continue to turn red. 
All right, Greg, thank you for your call. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm always uh, sad during the, the holidays when I can't have the poinsettia because I have cats. I, I, I read somewhere that they're poisonous, uh, Charlie. Is that true? Well, they're not. I wouldn't call them highly toxic. Okay. You know, I think that's kind of been blown out of proportion with poinsettias. Mm. They're a euphorbia family, so they have that white, sticky latex uh, sap to them. And if you eat a lot of the leaves, I think someone said you have to eat like 100 leaves to really get, even get an upset stomach. So I wouldn't worry too much about that plant as being one that, that a cat or a dog would really um, have a hard time with. Uh, they would have to eat a lot of them, I think, to get upset. And probably what they'd end up doing is just throwing up. <laughs> okay. Well, good to know. Again, you've got a gardening question, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned the beauty, the beautiful foliage right now. Uh, Charlie. And of course, uh, people are thinking about all the leaves falling on uh, their lawns. But let's talk about the benefits of natural leaf cover. When we think about boosting biodiversity. Uh, yeah, you know, for so long, and it still happens in a lot of neighborhoods, uh, people will go through and whether it be a lawn service or homeowners and try to rake up all the leaves or suck up all the leaves um, and haul them off to a, a landfill or to some kind of recycling center. And that's a shame because those leaves are dropping and that is fertilizer for your trees and your shrubs around in your landscape. So the first thing to do is if you just have a few trees and you just have a thin layer of leaves, so the grass is still poking through here and there, the best thing to do is just take your mower, run right over it and shred them all up and leave them on the lawn. Then the earthworms and other soil critters will come up and they'll eat them and you'll see within a week or two they'll all be gone if you have a really thick layer of leaves then you can't obviously just leave that on the grass because that will kill the grass eventually so you do need to collect some of those but you can use them effectively in the landscape so you can shred them up a little bit again we don't want to have like big oak leaves or maple leaves uh, right around plants but if you shred them up into little pieces you can mulch around your perennial flowers with those mulch around trees and shrubs cover over vegetable and annual flower beds you can use them in a variety of ways and if you have a whole ton of leaves you can just rake a bunch of them up stick them in the back corner of your property maybe put a chicken wire cage around them and just leave them there in a year or two, they will decompose down to a material we call leaf mold, which is a great compost fertilizer for your garden. Yeah, so when you give us these great tips, so it's also avoid the, the stink eye your neighbor may give you if you just leave the leaves uh, sitting down in the yard, Charlie. Right. They're thinking you're waiting for that windstorm to come through and just blow them all away. <laughs> Again, you can join us with your gardening questions, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So here in Connecticut, uh, we, uh, we're dealing with uh, some drought, uh, depending on the region that people are living. And so, of course, farmers, recreational uh, gardeners. So when we think about how um, there have been these alternate extremes of drought and flooding in our state, uh, uh, Charlie, you know, what are your tips to even improving your, your, your lawn's resiliency? Yeah, so for lawns, uh, it all starts with the soil. And if we have a really healthy, well-drained soil underneath that lawn, um, then if it's a drought or if it's a flood, the lawn is going to be able to bounce back much quicker. And so the way to do that, and it's something you can do right now, is to top dress your lawn with compost. Put down about a quarter inch layer of compost. So enough so that you have the compost on the grass, but the grass is kind of still poking through it. Just spread that over lawn area. If you have a big lawn, maybe you do it in sections. Every year you do one section and another section. 
what that'll do is that'll slowly work its way down and it'll create a rich, thick environment underneath the lawn where the roots are uh, for all the soil microbes that are there. And that's gonna create a thicker, lusher, a healthier lawn. And so when that happens, the lawn is gonna be more resilient to weed invasions. I know I get a lot of questions about Creeping Charlie and the Juga and all these other weeds that'll come in, but also from drought and from uh, flooding stress. Another thing you could do this time of year is if your lawn is mostly just lawn grass is to overseed it with some white clover. So white clover is a great thing to have in a lawn because it's a legume. But once it gets established, it'll start fixing nitrogen to feed the lawn so you don't have to fertilize as much. And the other thing about it is, is you'll notice in a lawn, especially during a drought, the lawn might brown out, but the clover doesn't brown out. It has a thicker, more extensive root system. So it helps keep your lawn green throughout mm -hmm. those dry conditions. So Mary's calling in. Mary, what's your question for Charlie Nardozzi? Um, I'm just curious. I have a lot of hosta in my yard. They've gotten huge. And I'm trying to control and not have as many and not as large. But trying to dig them out is really challenging. So I guess I'm asking, how do I take out some of these hosta and how do I, can I divide them? Charlie? Uh, yes, you can. Now, normally, it's getting a little late to be dividing anything, but hostas and daylilies are the two plants that I call foolproof, <laughs> meaning that you could probably divide them in December and they still would survive. They're really tough plants. So yes, this is a good time to go out there, uh, maybe after a rain when the soil is a little more moist, a little easier to dig around in. Uh, you could dig out the whole club, or you, what you could do is just take your spade or your shovel and just uh, divide right through the middle of it, kind of uh, go right through the center and slice it um, and take part of that out and leave part of it there. That way it doesn't require you to have to dig up the whole thing. And in that way, you'll have some new plants that you can spread around, you can give away, or, or you can just compost if you really don't need them. Janice is calling in from Bark Hampstead. Janice, what's your question? Hi. Um, my question is uh, regarding spring raised bed um, planting. I had heard that it is not advisable to till or dig up and turn over the soil in your raised bed because it potentially disrupts the microbiomes that are in that soil. And I was wondering if the horticulturist could clarify whether or not you should or should not turn over your soil in your raised bed in the spring. Great question. Charlie Nardozzi. Uh, well, Janice, you probably have read my book then, <laughs> which is The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. And that's exactly what I talk about in that book, is that the best thing to do for those annual beds of flowers, herbs, or vegetables is to leave them, is to not turn them, not till them, because you are, just as you correctly said, going to be killing that soil biome, all the microbes that are in there that are creating the air, water, spaces uh, for nutrients to flow and creating the spaces for roots to grow. So the best thing to do in your vegetable garden this time of year is to cut back uh, plants that maybe were diseased, like your tomatoes, for example. Cut them back to the ground, remove them out of the garden. If you have vegetables like peppers or like broccoli or lettuces that don't have much disease on them and grew pretty well, you can do a technique called chop and drop. So I get a hedge trimmer and I just chop them all up into little pieces and drop them right on the soil and just leave them there as a mulch. So you will be mulching that bed with either the chopped and dropped materials, or if you remove the plants, bring in some chopped leaves, uh, untreated grass clippings, hay or straw, and put a layer of that on the bed. That's gonna protect the soil from eroding and protect that soil biome so that next spring you come in and all you need to do is put a layer of compost on top 
and plant right through it. No tilling, no digging, no hard work. That's what I like to hear, uh, Charlie Nardozzi. You know, before we run out of time, we just got a couple of minutes. You go to a lot of garden shows, and I'm wondering, are there any perennials, new perennials, uh, that are varieties that you want to mention before the end of the show to look out for this spring? Well, certainly. There's always new varieties of everything that's out there. And, and we do get some uh, different plants that come in uh, for us to trial because they know I'm kind of in the gardening media world. So it's always fun to, to look for them. Uh, there are some new salvias out there that are really beautiful, uh, nice, hardier salvias with a longer flowering time. That's kind of the thing that I've noticed a lot that's happened in the perennial flower world is they, they are breeding plants now that bloom longer. So they're almost like annuals. Some of the echinaceas now seem to be brewing. We have some that are still blooming out there uh, in our garden that will bloom for a longer period of time. So looking for those kinds of plants and then for dwarf plants too. If you have a small space area, you don't have a lot of room to garden. Uh, there's some beautiful dwarf uh, veronicas out there, um, echinaceas that are out there as well that you can look for in the spring. I also love to plug that this is also a good time to be planting uh, perennials, uh, Charlie. And I'm wondering, like, when we think about the last frost uh, <laughs> coming, uh, or first frost, rather, you know, what should we, how many more weeks do we have? <laughs> well, that's a good one. I have to look in the crystal ball for that. <laughs> Generally, you need, for uh, perennial trees and shrubs that are planted in the fall, you want to have about a, a month or so before the ground freezes. And that, again, is a kind of a random date. It could be end of November, early December. You never know, depending on the winter. But now is still probably a pretty safe time. If you go to garden centers and nurseries, they have lots of sales. You can snatch up some beautiful trees, shrubs, and perennials mm -hmm. that you can plant in the garden. Uh, just make sure you, you put them in. Uh, keep them well watered, especially if it stays dry this fall. Um, and maybe you can protect them with a little mulch. A little bark mulch will be nice, or a little wood mm -hmm. mulch around them uh, just for that first year. And they should do fine. That's Charlie Nardozzi, again, a garden writer, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public. You can get more tips on his website, gardeningwithcharlie.com. Charlie, thank you so much, and we love hearing from you. Well, it's always great to be here. Take care, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Katie Pellico produced today's show. Now, before you start your weekend, take time to support Connecticut Public with a pledge. It's the final day of the fall membership campaign. My 